33, would probably lead to its being discovered that you are not Chinaman. Charlie and Fred promised not to forget what he had said. When they had trudged about three quarters of a mile they joined the main road to the village for which they were bound. And from now onwards at every few yards they met a Chinaman. The pages thoroughly enjoyed the novel scene. Chinamen of almost all stations of life seemed to be using that road. One moment they would see a pompous-looking man riding on a sturdy, shaggy pony, the next, a dandy being carried in a palanquin, coolies with a long pole across one shoulder, and a basket or bundle hanging from each end, hurried past them at a shuffling kind of run. Heavier loads were carried on poles, which rested on the shoulders of two coolies. Occasionally some pedestrian would make a friendly remark to the three travelers, and when that happened Ping Wan replied in the most genial manner. When they had been on the tramp for about an hour and a half, Ping Wan looked round, and seeing that no Chinamen were near, said, as he pointed to a square-looking object in the distance, that is Su Chin, our first halting place. After this the three friends were compelled to remain silent, so constantly were they meeting people, and the nearer they drew to the town the more numerous did the people become. The town was enclosed by a brick wall, and from a distance looked able to withstand the attack of any enemy, but a closer inspection showed that the defenses were practically worthless, and that the town could be quickly destroyed by modern guns. In some places the walls had crumbled away. Some of the guns were so old and rusty that to have fired them would have done more harm to the gunners than to the enemy. But most of the guns were dummies wooden things, mounted to give a formidable look to the place. Will there be any difficulty about getting into the town? Fred whispered. Oh, no, Ping Wan replied. We will enter by that gate facing us. There will probably be some soldiers there, but they won't interfere with us. Ten minutes later Ping Wang and the pages arrived at the open gate, near which were some half-dozen dirty rascals playing some Chinese game. They were soldiers, but so interested were they in their game that they did not even glance at the people passing in and out. Ping Wang told Fred and Charlie, later, that these imitations of soldiers usually passed their time in that fashion. Once in the town Charlie and Fred felt that they were comparatively safe, for it seemed that among the large population they would escape notice. No one appeared to suspect that they were not Chinamen, and Ping Wang, who had recently been regretting he had induced the pages to take part in such a dangerous enterprise, became convinced that they would reach the house for which they were bound without any difficulty. The reason for entering the town was to discover from a cousin of his, who resided there, if Chin Chu were still alive, he knew that it was a risky thing for him to do to bring the pages into the town, but he was convinced that to have left them by themselves outside would have been far more dangerous. In a few minutes, he said, quietly, we shall arrive at my cousin's house. He is a Christian, and will not let anyone know that you are Englishmen. He will give us a meal, and then we can start off refreshed to Kwangan. But before they had gone another fifty yards, and just as they were passing a big building, which King Wan whispered was the residence of some high official, some twenty yamen runners, or policemen, suddenly rushed out of the courtyard and seized the three of them. The men were armed with swords, and to have resisted would have been madness. King Wan indignantly asked to be told why they were treated thus, but got no reply. Charlie and Fred had the good sense not to utter a word, for, although they believed that it had been discovered that they were Europeans, they were determined not to convict themselves. With a necessary roughness they were hurried into the courtyard from which their captors had sullied. 
and before long a mandarin came out of the house to inspect them. He was not attired in his official clothes, and did not come within twenty yards of the prisoners, but after a glance at them made some remark to the leader of the men who had captured them, and then returned indoors. Ping Wan was still ignorant of the cause of their arrest, but, as no cries of foreigners, had been raised, he knew that it had not yet been discovered that Charlie and Fred were Europeans. Once again he demanded to be told why they had been arrested, but, instead of replying, the leader raised his bamboo cane menacingly, as Ping Wan had no desire to be beaten. He made no further efforts to solve the mystery of their arrest. His sole anxiety now was as to what would be done to them, that they were supposed to have committed some crime he guessed, and that they would be punished, although they had not been tried. He was also sure, without any delay, Charlie, Fred, and Ping Wan were marched out of the courtyard, and through the streets, until they came to a large building, which Ping Wan recognized with dismay as a prison, but, with a thrill of hope, he found that they were not taken into the prison, but marched round the wall until they came to a spot where there were half a dozen wooden collars lying on the ground, these wooden collars are very much like the old English pillory, with the exception that the person who has to wear the instrument is not placed on a platform, but stands or sits on the ground, Charlie and Fred did not recognize the instruments of punishment, and, when they were suddenly flung to the ground, they imagined that they were about to be executed, as they felt the collars tighten round their necks, and had their hands pushed through two holes lower down on the wooden board, they came to the conclusion that they were to be tortured to death, but when they found that nothing more was done to them they turned their heads as far as their wooden collars would permit to see how their companion was faring, then, seeing each other, they understood the nature of their punishment, the Chinaman, having chained the wooden collars to the prison wall, departed, leaving the three prisoners to the tender mercies of any passers-by. Now they are all gone I must speak, Charlie exclaimed. How long will they keep us in these things? I haven't the faintest idea, Ping Wang answered. For fully half an hour they did not speak a word. Scores of people passed them during that time, but very few took any notice of them, for it was by no means an unusual sight to see prisoners there two or three chaffed them, but no one molested them, their first tormentors were two boys, who walked up and down in front of them, pulling their noses as they passed, but, fortunately, an official, whose duty it was to pay periodical visits to men in their position, came in sight, and the young rascals fled in alarm, this official, who was aged, smiled with delight at having caused the boys to go without much exertion on his part, he wore a hat which reminded Charlie and Fred of a candle extinguisher. In other respects his costume did not differ from that of any ordinary Chinaman. Venerable uncle, Ping Wang exclaimed as soon as the old man reached them. Why are your dogs of servants placed in the wooden collars? The old man smiled, for in his time he had heard hundreds of prisoners ask that question. Nevertheless he replied, for he always treated prisoners courteously having seen many respectable men in the position of his questioner, did not my honorable brother steal a horse that belonged to the foreigners? He asked. Your dogs of servants have not stolen anything. The old man laughed incredulously. The foreigners say that you did, he declared. They have not seen us, but they have declared to the Mandarin that three men stole their horse at daybreak. Therefore you were arrested, having given this very unsatisfactory piece of information. The old man calmly walked away. When he was out of hearing, Ping Wang said to his friends in misfortune, We are arrested for horse stealing. 
some foreigners missionaries, I imagine, as there are not likely to be any other Europeans in this place have complained that they have had their horse stolen by three men, evidently the Mandarin, or one of his subordinates, promised to inquire into the matter, and, in order to give the missionaries the impression that they had caught the thieves, ordered the arrest of any three men. Apparently we happened to be passing just as the Yaman runners started out, and therefore they took us. Now the Mandarin will inform the missionaries that he has had the thieves caught and punished. Nothing more was said by either of the unfortunate prisoners for nearly an hour. So continuously were people passing to and fro, their necks were aching terribly, and, in spite of their determination not to lose heart, they became very dispirited. Continued on page 324. A coat of paint. I want the boat smartened up a bit, Jack. You will lend a hand this afternoon, and help me to give her a fresh coat of paint. What is the use of wasting paint over an old thing like that, Grandfather? You only use her for taking out the lobster pots. I wish we had a good boat we could hire out to visitors. If wishes were horses, beggars would ride, the old man said. Or perhaps, in the present case, they would sail but I have not quite enough money put by for a new boat yet, and there is little chance of making any, Jack grumbled, well, we must just make the best of what we have got, and, you know, Jack, I must have things ship shape about me, and so, even if the Mary Jane has seen her best days, she can still be kept spick and span as well as seaworthy, there would be some sense in keeping a smart little craft which looked nice, Jack argued, but this old tub is only fit for firewood, now, look here, Sonny, suppose I were to say, it is no use for an old fellow like me to try to look respectable, I will just have done with brush and comb, soap and water, and go in rags, and will leave it for the young folks to be smart and tidy. Oh, that wouldn't do at all, Jack said, looking at the old man, with his jolly ruddy face and white hair, Granny would never allow that and I am not going to allow my old Mary Jane to be slovenly either, but I will manage the job myself if old folks and old boats are not worth your troubling about. Now this made Jack rather ashamed of his reluctance to help, so in the afternoon he came and worked with a will, until the old boat in her new dress looked as if she had grown young again. Indeed, the fresh paint had such a smart appearance that a little girl passing down to the beach stopped and gazed at it with admiration. Look, Daddy. She called to her father, isn't it a dear little boat? Could we have it to go for a row? It certainly looks broad and safe enough for a small girl who finds it difficult to keep still, was the answer, and the result was an arrangement to hire the boat at intervals for the rest of the summer season, and when the Mary Jane was laid up for the winter, Jack and his grandfather counted their earnings, and found that enough had been gained to make up the sum wanted for a new boat. That coat of paint was worth something after all the old man said, and remember, Sonny, that taut and trim is a good motto to hold by whether your work lies among boats or not, mh a hundred years ago, true tales of the year 1805, vi, the battle of Trafalgar, October 21st, 1805, and since that day Street George's Cross has ruled the dark blue sea, for Nelson led the windward line, and Collingwood the Lee, E. H. Mitchell, it was in the early dawn of October 21, 1805, when Nelson, pacing the quarter deck of the victory, could distinctly make out the enemy the combined fleets of France and Spain. Villeneuve, the French admiral, a skillful seaman, 
had placed his ship so as to leave the port of Cadiz open for himself, whilst bringing the British ships close to the shoals of Trafalgar. Nelson, however, was confident of success, and asked Captain Blackwood what he should consider as a victory. Blackwood, knowing the enemy to be superior both in the number of ships and weight of guns, said he thought it would be a glorious victory if fourteen vessels were captured. I shall not, Blackwood, be satisfied with less than twenty, was Nelson's reply, and he ordered the fleet to enter, and prepare for battle. Then he retired to his cabin, and calmly wrote a prayer, commending himself to God and begging for a glorious victory, and may no misconduct in any one tarnish it, and may humanity after victory be a prominent feature in the British fleet. About 11 a.m. he was again on deck, and turning to Captain Blackwood he asked him if there was not still a signal wanting. Then, almost before the captain could answer that he thought the whole fleet seemed thoroughly to understand what was required of them, Nelson had ordered his lieutenant, Mr. Pascoe, to hoist the memorable signal, England expects that every man will do his duty. This signal Nelson's last signal was received with hearty cheering throughout the fleet. Now, said Nelson. I can do no more, we must trust to the great disposer of all events, and the justice of our cause, I thank God for this great opportunity of doing my duty, there was one matter which was causing great anxiety to the officers on board the victory, and that was the conspicuousness of Nelson's dress, he wore on the left breast of his admiral's frock coat, the four stars of the different orders with which he had been invested, and these shining ornaments at once singled him out from his officers and rendered him an easy mark for the enemy's sharpshooters. No one, however, dared to remonstrate with Nelson on this subject for on a previous occasion, one begged to change his dress, or cover his stars. He had answered somewhat shortly, In honor I gain them, and in honor I will die with them. At a few minutes before midday the battle began, Nelson and Collingwood each leading his line of ships, Nelson steering a little more to the north than Collingwood in order to cut off the enemy's retreat into Cadiz, so that the lee line under Collingwood was first engaged. See, cried Nelson, pointing to the royal sovereign, as she steered straight for the enemy's line. See how that noble fellow Collingwood carries his ship into action, whilst Collingwood, delighted to be the first in the heat of fire, exclaimed at the same time to his captain, What would Nelson give to be here? Nelson, however, had not cause for long to envy Collingwood, as very soon the victory also was in the thick of the battle. The admiral's secretary was shot whilst standing by his side, and shortly afterwards a shot struck the four brace bits on the quarter deck and passed between Nelson and Hardy his captain, tearing off his buckle and bruising his foot. Both men looked anxiously at each other, for each thought the other wounded. Then Nelson smiled and said, This is too warm work. Hardy, too last long. The victory was alongside the French ship Redoubtable, whose tops were filled with riflemen. Suddenly a ball fired from her mizzen top, not more than 15 yards from where Nelson was standing, struck the epaulet on his left shoulder, and he fell on his face on the deck. Hardy, but a few steps away, turned round to see three men raising the wounded admiral. They have done for me at last. Hardy, said Nelson. I hope not, said Hardy. Yes, he replied. My backbone is shot through. He still, however, kept his presence of mind, and taking out his handkerchief covered his face and his stars, so that his crew might not be discouraged by knowing that the wounded officer being carried past to the cockpit was their dearly loved commander. 
had he but concealed those badges of honor from the enemy, says Southey. England perhaps would not have had cause to receive with sorrow the news of the Battle of Trafalgar. Nelson was well aware that his wound was mortal, and at once told the surgeon to attend to the other wounded men, who lay all about the deck and crowded cockpit. For, said he, you can do nothing for me. The lifeblood was in fact fast ebbing away, and all that could be done for the dying hero was to fan him with paper and to give him lemonade to alleviate the great thirst that always follows gunshot wounds. Meanwhile, the battle raged fiercely, and even in his dying agonies Nelson's eyes would gleam with joy when he heard the cheers of his men as often as an enemy ship struck. He now became very anxious to see Captain Hardy, but it was an hour or more before Hardy was able to leave the quarter deck, and hasten to Nelson's side. He was so affected that he could only silently shake the admiral's hand. Hardy said Nelson. How goes the day? Very well, replied Hardy. Ten ships have struck, and I have no doubt of giving them a drubbing. I hope, said Nelson. None of our ships have struck. No fear of that, answered Hardy. He had now to go again on deck, but in an hour's time returned to the cockpit, and congratulated the dying commander on having gained a complete victory. Fourteen or fifteen of the enemy being taken, perhaps more but in the confusion of the battle it was impossible to be quite accurate. That's well, said Nelson, but I bargained for twenty. Then a few minutes later he said in a low voice, don't throw me overboard, and then feeling life to be all but gone, he said, kiss me, Hardy. Hardy knelt down and kissed his cheek, and Nelson said, now I am satisfied. Thank God I have done my duty. These words he kept faintly repeating again and again until he died just four hours and three quarters after he had received his wound. The victory of Trafalgar was complete. The fleets of France and Spain were not merely defeated, but completely shattered, and England had no longer any cause to dread a foreign invasion. But great as were the rejoicings over this victory, the death of Nelson cast such gloom over the whole country that the rejoicings were said to be without joy. A fitting monument to Britain's greatest admiral was erected some years later in Trafalgar Square, London. A statue of Nelson, in cocked hat and with empty right sleeve, stands towering aloft at a height of 145 feet, at the base crouch lanciers for majestic lions, watchful as he who for so many years maintained for Britain the supremacy of the sea. Welcome to the first fire. The north wind is sighing. The daylight is dying. The sun has gone down and the night shadows fall, but see, lightly dancing, and peeping, and glancing, the firelight is climbing our nursery wall, then greet this newcomer who left us all summer, to hide in old cinders while weather was warm, yet must have been near us, for now, just to cheer us, he comes back at once with the winter and storm, oh, ruddy flames leaping, say, where were you sleeping, in some land of fairy where fires never die, and wind always freezes, or heard you the breezes that fan our sweet roses through June and July, twas spring when we parted you smoldered downhearted, the lilacs were out, and we told you to go, but knew, when November had come, you'd remember to cheer us again with your warmth and your glow, old condits, young readers are sometimes puzzled, in reading accounts of ancient processions through city streets, at the frequent references to the condits passed on the way, a condit was a strong tower built of stone, furnished with taps, through which water was supplied to the people. London householders used to send their servants and apprentices, with jugs and pails, to the condits, 
to obtain water for daily use, and a great deal of gossiping and quarreling went on at these places. On state occasions the conduits were decorated, and, at the coronation of one of the queens, we read that over the conduit near Shulane was raised a turret, with figures of the four cardinal virtues, while the taps, instead of sending out water, ran for that day with streams of wine. Often, as a royal procession passed such places, a youth or child, in some strange dress, would stand forth, and deliver a speech, prepared beforehand, to the king or queen, clever Billy, a true story, well, Lucy, how have you been getting on since I saw you last, said Miss Fanny Cresswell to her niece, Lucy, Lucy had come on a visit to her aunt's pretty cottage in the country, and very pleased the little girl was to be there, nevertheless, there was a shadow on her usually bright face as she looked up, we have had a great trouble at home, Aunt Fanny, she answered, our dear old dog, Carlo, is dead, he was so clever and so good that we shall never get another like him, why, he even carried my basket when I went shopping, instead of being stupid, like other animals, Aunt Fanny could hardly help smiling, Carlo was indeed a good dog, and I am very sorry that he is dead, she said, but you must not think, my dear, that all the other animals are stupid, my goat, Billy, Island in his own way, as clever as Carlo, as you may see tomorrow morning that island if you are up in time, Lucy thought to herself that Aunt Fanny's rough goat of whom, in her heart, she was a little afraid could not possibly equal poor, faithful Carlo, but she took care to be early next morning, and very soon she found out her aunt's meaning, Miss Cresswell was writing at her desk, and Mary, the maid, was busy getting breakfast, when the postman came to the gate, there is the postman with a letter, cried Lucy, shall I run and take it, Auntie? oh, never mind, said Aunt Fanny, Billy will do that, sure enough Billy trotted up to the smiling postman and received the letter in his mouth, once or twice he capered round Lucy, who had followed to the gate, and then, standing quite still, he held up his head as if proud of his achievement, and allowed the letter to be taken, good Billy, said Lucy, as, ashamed of her former fears, she patted his shaggy side, you are clever, it is just as wonderful for a goat to bring the letters as for a dog to carry a basket, afloat on the dogger bank, a story of adventure on the North Sea and in China, continued from page 319, chapter XIV, an hour passed, and Charlie, Fred, and Ping one word are still in the wooden collars, Charlie and Fred closed their eyes, but, as they did not succeed in getting any sleep, after ten minutes endeavor they gave up the attempt, and had a short conversation in low tones, Ping Wan was lamenting that he had persuaded the pages to come to China, when they heard a shout of foreigners, and turning their eyes in the direction from which it came they saw a European approaching, he wore a beehive hat, but the remainder of his attire was European, he is coming towards us, Fred exclaimed, joyfully, but he won't be able to set us free, Charlie answered, he is a missionary, Ping Wan declared, and you may be sure that he will do all that he possibly can to help us out of our trouble, come closer, he shouted, in Chinese, we want to speak to you, I say, Charlie exclaimed, it's Barton, the old international, so Island Fred said, delightedly, feeling certain that a resourceful football player, such as Barton had proved himself to be times innumerable, would devise some means for freeing them, well, said Barton, smiling, you're collared, and Charlie and Fred laughed, how did you get in this fix, 
Barton continued, seriously, and King Wan related in a few words how they had been arrested. This is very unfortunate, Barton declared. Early this morning one of our converts saw three men make off with my colleague's horse. I reported the theft to the Chinese officials, and urged that steps should be taken to detect the thieves. I suppose that to save the trouble of making inquiries they arrested you. I received information about an hour ago that the thieves had been caught, and I came out to see if I knew the men. Now I must hurry away, and see if I can get you set at liberty. It will be difficult, I fear, but you may rely on my doing my best. Barton hurried away, leaving the prisoners in much better spirits. Nearly two hours passed before he returned, and they had begun to fear that his efforts on their behalf had not been successful. Barton smiling, Charlie whispered, as the missionary drew near, we are going to be released. I should like to give old Barton a cheer. It wouldn't be the first I have given him by many a score. Don't talk, Ping Wang said, and in a few minutes the men who had arrested them had unlocked the collars, and set them free. Come with me, Barton said, as they rose from their cramped position on the ground. Can you speak Chinese? He asked the pages, when they had walked a few yards, and, on their replying that they only knew a few words, added, then we will speak English, you need not fear that it will arouse suspicion, for several of our native Christians have learned English, by the by, I am sorry to have kept you waiting, the officials knew very well that they had arrested the wrong men, but when I told them that such was the case, they flatly contradicted me, however, after we had a long conversation, they told me that they would set you free, but would not arrest anybody else, I agreed to that at once, and they seemed quite as pleased as I was at the result of my interview. We are very grateful to you Charlie began, but Barton stopped him. My dear fellow, you have nothing to thank me for. In fact, I am the innocent cause of the hardship you have undergone, for if I had not complained of our horse having been stolen, you would not have been arrested. But, I hope, he continued, you have not suffered from the wooden collars. Our next half, mine is horribly stiff. We can remedy that with Embrocation. When we reach our house we shall soon be there you had better have a bath at once. The pages and King One were very pleased when they reached the mission station, and were able to indulge in the luxury of a warm bath. Having bathed, rubbed their necks with Embrocation, and while shaken their clothes, they strolled out onto the veranda, where Barton was waiting for them. He led the way along the veranda, which ran the length of the building, and turned into a large, airy, plainly furnished dining room. At the head of the table sat the senior missionary a man of about fifty years of age and facing him was his wife. An elderly lady and a young man were the other missionaries, and there were also at the table the four children of the senior missionary. After dinner they all went out on the veranda, and there Charlie, by request, told his new friends why he and Fred were in Suqing disguised as Chinamen. The senior missionary strongly advised the pages and King Wan to give up their journey declaring that if they persisted they would probably meet with worse punishment than the wooden collar. But the jewels belong to me, King Wan declared. I do not doubt it. But nevertheless, Chin Chu would regard you as a common thief. Why not ask him to return the idol to you? That would make him think it was more valuable than he had supposed. Moreover, he has threatened to kill me if ever he has the opportunity. Then why give him an opportunity? I do not mean to. We will wait at Kwangan until we get a chance of regaining the idol without being found out. A little later King Wang's cousin arrived at the missionary's house, 
and was able to give the traveler some valuable information. He had paid a visit to Kuangwen during the previous week, and had seen Chinchu on several occasions. One evening as he passed Chinchu's house, he saw the gate being opened the idol which the Mandarin had stolen from Ping Wang's father, standing in the front room nearest the road, to discover the room in which Chinchu kept his stolen idol. Ping Wang had considered the most difficult part of their undertaking, and now that the information had been obtained without any exertion on their part, he felt surer than ever that the jewels would soon be in their possession. Our friends are tired, the senior missionary said to his colleagues, about two hours after dinner, so we will have the evening service at once. The gong was sounded, and soon the native English-speaking servants filed into the big room in which the Europeans were assembled. It was long since the pages had worshipped among their own people, and as they listened to the prayers, and joined in the evening hymn, they felt that this was one of the most peaceful half-hours they had ever experienced, and before rising from their knees, they thanked God, silently but earnestly, for having brought them safely through so many dangers. Then, bidding good night to their kind hosts, they retired to the large three-bedded room which had been placed at their disposal. It was their intention to resume their journey early the following morning, but a few hours after they had turned in Charlie and Fred were awakened by hearing Ping Wang groaning. Jumping out of bed they lighted the lamp and looked anxiously at their friend. What's the matter, old boy? Charlie asked. But Ping Wang evidently did not hear. He's unconscious, Fred said. Call Barton, for he knows more about fever than I do. Fred soon saw that he had acted wisely in sending for Barton. As the missionary thoroughly understood what it was necessary to do in such cases, for an hour or so there was, however, no improvement in the patient's condition, and Barton decided to sit up with him. Member Fred said, let me sit up, I'm a medical student, and it's my right to look after the patient. Medical students have plenty of pluck, I know, Barton replied, with a smile, but they cannot defy nature with impunity, you are completely fagged out and if you don't turn in at once I shall have two patients tomorrow instead of one. Charlie and Fred were soon sound asleep, and it was not until nine o'clock in the morning that Fred awoke. He relieved Barton at once, and the missionary went away to get a brief rest. About an hour after Barton had gone out, Ping Wang awoke, and, to the delight of his two friends, spoke rationally. They forbade him, however, to talk, and told him that the quieter he kept, the quicker would be his recovery. He was an excellent patient, and the result of his obedience was that, in three days, he was able to leave his bed, but his illness left him very weak, and Barton and Fred agreed that it would be, 